The widow of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny is vowing to press on with his fight against Vladimir Putin. Navalny's death last week has shaken the families of other political prisoners in Russia. We'll speak with one of them. Today is Monday, February 19th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, recent attacks on commercial vessels in the Red Sea are causing trouble for global supply chains. This includes shipments of tea bound for Great Britain. We're starting to see large-scale disruption in terms of our tea not reaching in time. The video game industry boomed early in the COVID pandemic, but layoffs followed. This year, more than 6,000 people have been laid off from the industry already. We'll find out what's driving the cuts. These stories and the forecast are coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden says he's willing to meet with House Speaker Mike Johnson to discuss another round of assistance to fund Ukraine's defense against Russia. Speaking to reporters at the White House today, Biden also blasted congressional Republicans for failing to pass a national security bill that would have provided additional aid to Ukraine. They're making a big mistake not responding. Look. The way they're walking away from the threat of Russia, the way they're walking away from NATO, the way they're walking away from meeting our obligations, it's just shocking. I've been for a while. I've never seen anything like this. The Senate tried to advance a bipartisan border security package that paired national security funds for Ukraine, but Speaker Johnson declared the bill dead on arrival in the House. The World Health Organization says it was able to help evacuate more than a dozen patients from southern Gaza's largest hospital on Sunday. The facility was taken over by Israeli forces amid the war against Hamas. NPR's Nareed Eisenman reports the agency is expressing grave concern for the many patients who remain at the hospital. Israeli troops launched their bid to control the hospital, known as Nasser Medical Complex, last Thursday, citing intelligence that Hamas was keeping the bodies of Israeli hostages on hospital grounds and launching attacks on Israel from the vicinity. WHO officials say they'd been requesting access for two days before their team was allowed to visit Sunday. The team was then able to assist with the removal of 14 critically ill patients to other medical facilities in Gaza, including Al-Aqsa Hospital and various field hospitals run by aid organizations. But WHO officials say they remain concerned about reports of serious supply shortages for about 180 patients who remain at Nasser Hospital. Nareet Eisenman, NPR News. A flood watch has been issued for many parts of Northern California. Ezra David Romero of member station KQED reports the weather system is the latest in a series of powerful storms to hit the state. Meteorologists forecast heavy rain, thunderstorms, and even the possibility of a weak water spout or tornado along the coast and counties north of San Francisco. Dalton Behringer of the National Weather Service says any tornado would be short-lived, lasting no longer than a minute or two. He says the main danger is flooding. Chance of flood advisory is running through 4 p.m., but kind of a caveat, you know, depending on what happens with the thunderstorms later, those might need to be extended. A high surf warning ends early Tuesday morning with the possibility of waves up to 28 feet crashing along the coast. The storm could last into Wednesday. For NPR News, I'm Ezra David Romero in San Francisco. Wall Street is closed today in observance of President's Day. This is NPR News. 
Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott has announced plans to build a military base camp near the southern border for National Guard troops. It's part of an effort by the state to stop migrants from illegally crossing into the U.S. Abbott says the camp will be an 80-acre complex along the banks of the Rio Grande and house up to 2,300 troops. Former President Donald Trump unveiled his latest pitch during a stop in Philadelphia over the weekend, and it wasn't a stump speech. NPR's Joe Hernandez reports the Republican presidential frontrunner was debuting a new line of Trump-branded sneakers. The never-surrender high tops are colored a shiny gold with an American flag on the back and the letter T on the side. They were going for $399 a pair, but the 1,000 pairs for sale have since sold out. Trump announced the product at a sneaker conference in Philadelphia on Saturday and also used it as an opportunity to court voters as he seeks the Republican nomination for president. It was one day after a New York judge ordered Trump and the Trump Organization to pay more than $350 million as part of a civil fraud case. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. One of the world's most iconic tourist attractions is closed to visitors today. The Eiffel Tower in Paris shut down after employees walked off the job in protest over the financial management of the monument. The closure comes as the city prepares to host the Summer Olympics. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Four members of the Brockton School Committee are calling for the National Guard to be deployed in the city's schools. WBUR's Amy Sokolow explains why. The group wrote in a letter to the mayor that students are wandering the halls, getting in fights, and using drugs. The committee members also say teachers have been calling out of work in response. School committee member Tony Rodriguez says he's looking for National Guard members to serve as substitute teachers and hall monitors. We do need to take our schools back into control and making sure that our students have a safe learning environment because what's going on at the high school is disheartening and kids are losing precious learning time when kids are causing chaos. Brockton Mayor Robert Sullivan says he doesn't support the use of the National Guard in schools. Governor Maura Healy says she's in touch with local officials about the issue. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. A Boston Globe review of bus routes that pass through Nubian Square in Roxbury finds that nearly all run late. The bus station there is a hub for riders. Last month, eight routes that run through Nubian ran late more than half the time. The worst offenders were routes 8 and 47. Both were late 86 percent of the time. An MBTA spokesperson tells the Boston Globe the agency is working to redesign routes and hire more drivers to help with the issue. Sudbury police are warning residents about a series of car break-ins. Police say on social media that at least 20 cars were broken into over the weekend. They're reminding people to lock their homes and cars and keep valuable items out of sight. In the forecast, 36 degrees now at the Garden this afternoon. The Bruins and Dallas Stars are headed for a shootout. They are tied 3-3 in overtime. Forecast tonight, pretty cold. Cold, down around 19 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny and nice temperatures in the mid-30s once again. 36 degrees now in Boston at 4.07. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include EBSCO, offering clinical decision support resources and tools, including disease and condition content from Dynamed and drug information from Meredith. Learn more at dynamedx.com. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington.
And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Billionaire Mark Cuban is on a mission to bring down the cost of prescription drugs through his online pharmacy. It's called Cost Plus Drugs, and it launched with a focus on generics. But now, two bear drugs, one for menopause and a birth control medication, are available. We'll get into what that means for bear and for patients in a few minutes. First, though, to a question prompted by the death last week of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, How safe are other Kremlin critics still being held in Russia's prison system? Among the most prominent, Vladimir Karamurza, former journalist, pro-democracy activist, and victim, he told me, of two poisoning attempts by people connected with Vladimir Putin. Here's part of our 2017 conversation. The way this toxin or this poison works is it shuts off organs one by one, one after another. So when doctors start treating something, let's say the heart, uh, about half an hour later, something else shut down. So they start treating, say, the kidneys. Then the liver shuts down, then the lungs. Karamurza recovered, returned to Russia to continue his opposition work, was arrested and sentenced two years ago to 25 years in prison over his criticism of the war in Ukraine. Well, we called Evgenia Karamurza, Vladimir's wife, to ask how he's doing. And she told me he is currently being held in solitary confinement. At the end of uh, January, he was transferred to yet another prison colony, uh, still in Siberia and Western Siberia in Omsk. He had been uh, in uh, the strict regime prison colony and was transferred to a so-called special regime prison colony, which is the harshest grade in the Russian penitentiary system. They hold him ice for everyone. He's still able to see his lawyer, uh, rarely, and he's still able to correspond with us through the prison mail system. And of course, uh, there is no need, I think, to say that every single letter goes through censorship. When were you actually last able to speak with him? At the end of last year, in December, Vladimir was allowed a 15-minute phone call, and that was the first Uh, phone call in over half a year. And uh, we have three kids. So if you divide 15 minutes by three, it means that, um, you know, every, um, our kids had five minutes each. And I was literally standing there with um, a timer because I could not let one kid to speak to his father longer than for five minutes. And of course, I did not speak to Vladimir myself because I didn't want to take that time away from the kids. I have not spoken to my husband since last summer. I'm so sorry. I saw that um, that Valentine's Day, February 14th, was your wedding anniversary, your 20th? Yes, it was. And uh, actually, talking about phone calls, Vladimir um, requested a phone call with me on that day and uh, received an official denial. The prison authorities said that this 20th uh, wedding anniversary was not an exceptional circumstance that would allow such a call. I I can imagine, or actually I probably can't, how you must worry about him every day, every hour. Um, does that feel heavier now in the wake of what's happened with Alexei Navalny? I am absolutely sure that every single family of political Uh, prisoners in Russia can now feel the pain and the the pain and the the misery and the fright of um, Alexei Navalny's family. Because we all know that our loved ones are held by the regime of murderers. Uh, 
who have been carrying out a war of aggression in Ukraine for two years. And we realize that the uh, Russian authorities today are using very harsh repressive methods with regard to all those who speak out against the war and against the regime. And those methods include punitive psychiatry, sexual and physical violence, isolation. And um, yes, these people's lives are in a grave, very grave danger. Mrs. Karamurza, I, I met and interviewed your husband here in Washington. This was back in 2017. He was recovering from what he believed to be the second time that the Kremlin had tried to poison him. He was still not in great health. But he was here. He was in Washington. He could have stayed. I have to ask, did you support his decision to return to Russia? Um, as for the poisoning attacks on him, uh, thanks to an, uh, an independent investigation by Bellingcat, the insider in Der Spiegel, we know not only the names but the faces of those FSB operatives who had been following my husband before both poisonings. And this is the team, the same team of assassins in the service of the Russian state that was later responsible for the poisoning of Alexei Navalny himself. So um, I think that we uh, received our answers despite the Russian authorities' continuous refusal to open an investigation into these poisonings. Um, and their refusal is quite understandable, of course, because uh, obviously they're not going to investigate themselves. The same happened with the murder of Boris Nemtsov uh, in 2015. The masterminds and the organizers of this crime have not yet been identified by the Russian authorities. So knowing what happened to him, I, I have to ask again, did you support his decision to go back to Russia? My husband is a Russian patriot. He believes that our country deserves better than Vladimir Putin. And as a Russian politician, he believed it his duty to show to his compatriots that they're not alone. To those of our compatriots who uh, chose to stand up and oppose themselves openly, to the regime and to the atrocities committed by it. And my husband uh, believes that he has to share the risks and the challenges faced by people back home. This is why he is where he is today. Is there anything you would say today to other members of the opposition in Russia, I suppose both inside Russia and abroad? Vladimir Putin thrives on impunity. Vladimir Putin depends on creating this warped image of reality in which the entire Russian population, all 145 millions of Russians, stand behind him in the war. And I believe that what scares Vladimir Putin is a strong response. That is my call on the global community, including those Russian citizens, and I am working with many of them, those uh, civil society groups that carry on, that have been carrying on for two years, courageously fighting the regime and trying to do everything to bring closer the day when the regime in Moscow collapses. And we need the help and support and solidarity of the global democratic community. Last thing, and it's, is there anything you would say to Alexei Navalny's wife, to Yulia Navalny, as someone who must have much more of an idea of what she is going through today than, than the rest of us? My heart goes out to her. My whole heart is breaking for Alexei's family, for what they're living through right now. Evgenia Karamurza, thank you so much. Thank you very much for speaking with me. Her husband is Russian opposition leader Vladimir Karamurza. He is imprisoned in Russia. 
Two more brand name drugs are headed to entrepreneur Mark Cuban's industry-disrupting online pharmacy. One is an oral contraceptive, and the other is a menopause drug, both made by Bayer. NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lumpkin reports on what that means. Bayer is dipping its toe into the world of Mark Cuban's online pharmacy, Cost Plus Drugs. The website offers drugs at steep discounts without middlemen called pharmacy benefit managers. Yaz birth control pills and Climara for menopause will now both be available for a fraction of their list prices, including Cost Plus's standard 15% markup in shipping. To Sebastian Guth, president of U.S. Pharmaceuticals at Bayer, it will be an experiment. I really look at this as a test and learn. It's a first initial step. Uh, We will learn and see what the results of this partnership are and may then decide to expand it further. The drugs are both off-patent and face generic competition. But Guth says women often pay for both these drugs out of pocket, skipping their insurance. And they often prefer to use the brand name over available generics. The Cost Plus partnership, he says, will expand access to patients. But according to KFF's Lori Sobel, the benefit to patients isn't clear. Under the Affordable Care Act, birth control like Yaz is covered without any copay, though some plans may only cover the generic. But not everyone knows that. Here's Sobel. We know from our survey from 2022 that about 40% of females are not aware of that. So there's a knowledge gap of who knows that if they use their insurance, it would be covered. Meanwhile, Yaz in particular is in the top 10 oral contraceptives people paid for despite the Affordable Care Act rules. Here's Sobel again. And we also know that it's been highly marketed. And so Yaz was the most advertised brand. So even though Yaz will have a $117 price tag at Cost Plus for a three-month supply compared to its more than $500 list price, it would still be a lot cheaper to just get the generic through insurance without a copay. Climara is also much cheaper at Cost Plus, $53 instead of $76. Those higher list prices don't take into account what drug companies actually get paid for drugs when they're purchased through insurance under normal circumstances. Middlemen called pharmacy benefit managers get a cut too, and the drug companies are left with a net price. Guth declined to share Yaz's or Climara's net prices. But drug industry veteran Richard Evans says the company probably isn't making less money through Cost Plus than regular insurance. And the visibility from Mark Cuban's pharmacy could increase sales. Sebastian Guth at Bayer says he's a big believer in pricing transparency, which Cost Plus is trying to bring more of to the United States. It will probably take a few months to see how the experiment works out. Sydney Lepkin, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at about 444, a rollout of the nation's key financial aid form had so many snafus, guidance counselors have been left scrambling to help confuse families sort out what to do. That story and much more still ahead. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. 
Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. Wall Street is closed today in honor of President's Day. Gasoline prices in Massachusetts are rising. AAA Northeast says a gallon of gas now averages $3.18. That's up two cents in the last week. It's still nine cents lower than the national average. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, and proud sponsor of The Heart of New England, the new IMAX film now showing at the Museum of Science, Boston. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Clear skies tonight. Temperatures in the upper teens, so pretty cold tonight. Tomorrow, sunny and dry. Temperatures in the mid-30s once again. Still 36 degrees in Boston at 421. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Today, the International Court of Justice in The Hague began a hearing focused on Israel's occupation of the West Bank. In opening remarks, the Palestinian Foreign Affairs Minister accused Israel of setting up a system of apartheid in the occupied territories, which are home to about 3 million Palestinians. Israel maintains it has the right to defend itself from threats in the territory. Since the October 7th attack by Hamas, Israel has stepped up security throughout the West Bank. But Israeli activists and Palestinians warn that many members of the newly formed forces on patrol are Jewish settlers who want to drive Palestinians off their land. NPR's Jeff Brumfield recently visited the city of Hebron and has this story. It's a chilly winter day in Hebron. We're standing on a hill overlooking the old city, surrounded by olive trees, waiting for a Palestinian activist named Issa Umro. We were supposed to meet him at his home, but he's nowhere to be seen. He said he's uh, at the checkpoint, so maybe he was held up. I'm here with a group of ex-Israeli soldiers called Breaking the Silence, which opposes the occupation of the West Bank. Part of its mission is to shed light on the Israeli military's activities. We passed through a lot of checkpoints to get here, we were more or less waved through. Amro is not so lucky. We eventually see him making his way up the hill. I, I was at a checkpoint since 30 minutes. Really? I took off everything. He says he was forced to strip down. He even had to lose his shoes. And he told me, take the shoes off. I told him, but it's mud. Hebron is one of the largest Palestinian cities in the West Bank, and it's also among the most volatile. That's because for decades, far-right Jewish settlers have laid claim to parts of the city center near a site holy to both Jews and Muslims. Over the years, Palestinian militants have opened fire on the settlers, who have in turn committed many acts of violence against Palestinian residents. And although the military's mission is to protect the settlers, it was also seen as a moderating force. Umro says that Palestinians sometimes even ask for help. In the past, you know, we were calling the army to help us or protect us from the settlers. 
But that's changed. In 2022, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu appointed a far-right politician from Hebron as the national security minister. Military forces became more aggressive towards Palestinians, Amro says. And then came the brutal attacks of October 7th. Hamas militants burst out of the Gaza Strip and massacred some 1,200 Israelis. The West Bank is not under Hamas control, and there was no mass attack in Hebron on that day. But when Umro tried to get home from work, he found his way blocked. Not by soldiers, he says, but by heavily armed settlers in body armor. Umro shared video of that day with NPR, which was able to independently verify some details such as the location where it was shot. In one recording, two older men with long beards and assault rifles shouted him to leave. Umro says he knew them not as soldiers, but as right-wing settlers. They seem to know him shouting his name as he walks away. He tried another way and again ran into a mixed group of armed settlers and regular soldiers. This time, he was detained. So I was kidnapped by the soldiers and the settlers in an army uniform. I was taken to the military base here, handcuffed with plastic cuffs to the point that it went into my skin. And it's not, you know, it was 10 hours of pain. He says he was beaten and abused during his time in custody until a senior army officer who recognized him told the others to let him go. The Israeli military did not comment directly on UMRO's account, but told NPR it looks into cases where soldiers, quote, deviate from what is expected. It says if it finds evidence of wrongdoing by troops, then, quote, significant command measures will be taken. Since he was held, things have only gotten worse, Umro says. Palestinians in central Hebron have been forced to stay inside for days at a time by settlers equipped with weapons, radios, and uniforms. There is no distinction anymore between the soldiers and the uh, violent settlers, either in their army uniform or in in their civilian uniform. Below Umro's house in the streets of central Hebron, the mixing of settlers and soldiers is on display. Since October 7th, many of the regular military units that patrolled Hebron have been sent to either fight in the war in Gaza or defend the northern border with Lebanon. To fill the gap, the military has recruited locals into regional defense units, including one here. We pass a group of them, young men in uniform wearing yarmulkes and peyote, the long curly locks of hair worn by religious Jews. You see on the patch, uh-huh. it says uh, the Agmar unit of Hebron. So those will be local settlers who've been mobilized. Uh Nadav Weiman is a former Israeli Special Forces soldier who is now deputy director of Breaking the Silence. The young men look well-equipped with rifles and new-looking helmets and body armor. But they're not the only ones here. As we walk through the old city, someone in a personal vehicle begins honking at us. He swings his car in front of us aggressively, blocking our path. He's shouting. Yeah, he's a settler. He's a settler. What's he saying? Until the Palestinian would rape you, you won't come to your senses. This settler is not with the military, Vyman says, but he is part of a local emergency response unit, and he's armed. He's a settler from the first response team of the settlement. He has an M16 with him, and he's a violent settler. Now freshly empowered as part of the security system designed to keep the peace in the West Bank. A soldier comes and talks to him, and eventually he drives off and leaves us alone.
The settlers say this new arrangement is necessary in the post-October 7th world. One named Shai Cohen comes to speak to us. It's true, he says, many have joined the reserve forces in the West Bank. I don't do army, but I have two, two brothers and my father also do reserve now in the army. Everybody now in the army. He says this is about safety for settlers like him. Jewish people living also here in this country. We have terror attack, a lot of terror attack. In its statement, the Israeli military said there have been more than 700 attacks in the West Bank since the beginning of the war. It has stepped up counterterrorism operations and checkpoints as a result, it says. Back at his home in the hills above central Hebron, Palestinian activist Issa Amro says he feels like he's under siege. His settler neighbors have long wanted him and other Palestinians out of their homes. Since October 7th, they've been relentlessly harassed. It's a policy to make our life harder and harder to make us leave certain areas. Umro estimates 20 to 30 percent of Palestinian families living nearby have already left. He says he's staying put for now, but he's more frightened than ever. I think they may come and shoot me in my room, in my bedroom. Nobody has given him a vest or a helmet to protect himself. Instead, he's bricked up his windows with cinder blocks to try and feel safe in his own home. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News, Hebron. The number of teens dying from overdoses has doubled in the last few years. One way to reverse that trend could be by tapping into a resource that kids are already familiar with, their pediatrician. Any cravings for opioids at all? None. What makes me really proud of you, Sam, is how committed you are to getting better. On tomorrow's All Things Considered, we look at the push to get more pediatricians to provide addiction care. You can listen online, on air, or ask your smart speaker to play your local member station by name. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's core curriculum, presenting the acclaimed writer David Gran. February 28th at 7 p.m. in the Sci Center. Admission is free. Reservations are required at davidgranbu.eventbrite.com. Take a break and have some fun with the news by playing the WBUR crossword puzzle each day. Five letters, digital trash. Two down, south of Ecuador. Play anytime at WBUR.org slash fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In the Middle East, Israel is vowing to send troops to Rafah, where the majority of Gaza's population is now sheltering. A member of Israel's war cabinet says a military operation will begin in southern Gaza in three weeks, unless Hamas releases the remaining Israeli hostages there. But the U.S. opposes such an operation without a plan to safely evacuate civilians. NPR's Greg Myrie says it appears many Palestinians are staying put despite the threat. 
They don't really have a place to go. They've moved all the way to Gaza's southern border as Israel has moved north to south through the territory. They say there's no place left. Um, If they did try to go back north, they'd be moving into devastated areas where there's no aid, no water, no food, um, and and they would again be at at, at risk. So uh, many seem to be saying, um, we're here. There's nowhere to go. We're going to just take our chances. NPR's Greg Myrie, Gaza's health ministry, says... More than 29,000 Palestinians have been killed in the territory since the start of the Israel-Hamas war back in early October. Wisconsin is one of the states where Republicans and Democrats have been fighting over political districts since the 2020 census, but Wisconsin's governor signed a redistricting bill today that may end some of those battles. From member station WUWM, here's Chuck Quirmbach. A couple months ago, the new liberal-controlled Wisconsin Supreme Court threw out state legislative maps that Republicans had used to roll up big majorities. But the court said it would accept new maps agreed to by GOP lawmakers and Democratic Governor Tony Evers. Evers has now signed a redistricting bill that uses maps his administration submitted, a measure Republicans okayed last week. Evers says the new law reflects political reality. Wisconsin is not a red state. It is not a blue state. Wisconsin is a purple state. And And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A new shelter is slated to open in Chelsea tomorrow. The day shelter is part of a statewide effort to help an influx of migrants and existing residents who need a home. More from WBUR's Todd Wallach. The Chelsea Shelter can serve up to 200 people, including families sleeping at an overnight facility in nearby Cambridge. The Cambridge Shelter is not 24-7, and so those families are needing a safe place to go during the day. That's one of the reasons we thought this particular proposal was really important. Sarah Bartley works at the United Way of Massachusetts Bay. The United Way administers a $5 million state grant to fund new shelters, including the one in Chelsea. Another nonprofit, La Collaborativa, will actually run the shelter. It plans to offer meals and space for families and individuals, as well as other assistance. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. A section of the MBTA's Green Line will close tomorrow and stay closed for two and a half weeks. There will be no service between Copley Square and Babcock Street, Cleveland Circle, and Brookline Hills. Shuttle buses will get riders around the closure. The MBTA will also make the commuter rail free between South Station and Lansdowne Station. The closure will run through the 8th of March. The annual President's Day Winterfest is underway on the Hancock-Adams Common in Quincy. Organizer John McDonald says there's a host of events for families looking to be entertained this school vacation. We have puppet shows. We have a dinosaur puppet show that it's enormous dinosaurs that's very exciting. We have ice sculptures of John Adams and John Quincy Adams, as well as a live demonstration. Uh, We have fire shows, stilt walkers, have birds of prey. There will also be live musical performances by local bands. Activities run until 7 o'clock tonight, and it's free to the public. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Executive Ph.D. Program in Business at Bentley. Three years part-time for experienced professionals seeking data research skills. Info session on February 21st. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. 
Boston Bruins fought hard for today's win at the Garden. They beat the Dallas Stars in overtime 4-3. to In the forecast, clear skies tonight, cold though, temperatures in the upper 20s, or upper teens that is, just about 20 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny and dry in the mid-30s again. Could have some sunshine and fair weather clouds around Wednesday, inching up to the high 30s. This is WBUR. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from BritBox, where viewers can stream new seasons of British detective series including Vera, Father Brown, Death in Paradise, and more. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The video game industry continues to be hit with layoffs. I mean, just this year, at least 6,000 layoffs have been announced. That follows more than 10,000 cuts in 2023. Now, the easy explanation for why all of this is happening is that demand increased during the pandemic when we were locked in our homes and into our devices. Companies scaled up accordingly. And now that the world has opened up again, these companies need to right-size. But that's only part of the story, according to IGN investigative reporter Rebecca Valentine. She's here now to tell us more. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. So I understand that you talked with more than 40 video game developers for your story. What have they been telling you? Like, what does it feel like to be a worker in this industry right now? The mood is pretty rancid. I, I heard from multiple people who were laid off twice in the same year. Oh, my uh, God. Which, yeah, it, it, even even just hearing that from one person was astonishing. But then I heard it from from like two or three people, and, and all at different studios. Like they would they would lose a job, they they would find another, and think, okay, well maybe I'm okay for a little while, and then just lose a second one. Jeez. I heard stories from people who had moved across the country for a job that was requiring them to work in the office, and then only to get laid off from that job after they had spent all this money and time and energy moving across the country, and now mm. you know didn't know what to do. Um, I I've heard from people who both they and their Partners work in the games industry, and so they're both either getting laid off or at risk of layoffs. It's just, it, it's it's pretty upsetting. Well, what are sort of the larger forces at play that's contributing to all these job losses? We talked about, okay, the pandemic's basically over. People are out of their houses. They're not hunched over their video game consoles anymore or not as much. But what else is going on? I think the biggest one and one of the things that came up in my piece again and again is that video games are getting really expensive to make. You need to have the best graphics, the, the most content, the most things for players to do. Uh, and as a result, uh, they take even longer to make. So games that you know, previously may have only taken two or three years to make are now taking four or five, six, seven, maybe even longer. And therefore the cost is just skyrocketing to make these big games. Well, how much of what you're describing right now has been a long time pattern in the video game industry? And by that, I mean like, you know, the way studios have always done business is to staff up when they're building games and then letting go of workers after a big launch, like, you know, when there's nothing left for them to do. How much are you just seeing more of the same thing that's inherent to the industry. I think it's very easy to sort of fall back on that and say, oh, well, the video game industry has always been like this. You know, you staff up when you're getting ready to release a big game and then the game comes out and you let people go. 
because you only need a very small team to start the next project and then right. you staff up again. And it's these waves. But again, just the sheer amount of people that are being impacted by this has only grown in recent years. And when you combine that with the fact that a lot of companies, both during the pandemic and even before, have been making big and sometimes very risky investments into a lot of different things, acquisitions of other studios, uh, blockchain technology and NFTs. Uh, we're now having a lot of conversations about AI investments as well. A lot of companies are just spending and spending and spending in, in these very big ways. When you combine all of that together, you end up with this climate where everything just feels very unstable and very unsafe for the people who are actually doing the work of making video games and not making yeah. the choices of where the money goes and how it's used. Well, do you think that the culture then within the video game industry is just fundamentally incompatible with job security, stability, predictability? Ah. Uh. Yeah. Uh, long, long term, it certainly seems that way. I, If you talk to analysts, uh, what I'm hearing a lot is that uh, they're expecting layoffs to start to slow down uh, as we get deeper into 2024. And then in 2025, there's an expectation that business will start to pick up again. The industry itself will continue to chug on, like I guess the well-oiled machine it is. But just as a, like a person uh, working in the games industry, it is kind of a fundamentally unstable career. And I think this has been a wake-up call for a lot of people in realizing that this thing that they love to do and are very good at making games uh, is is maybe not a place that they're able to retire in. And I don't know that we have a solution for that yet. That is IGN's Rebecca Valentine. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Recent attacks on ships by Houthi militants in the Red Sea have disrupted global supply chains and the effects are being felt around the world. In Britain, it's left folks worried about the one thing many say they cannot live without. From London, NPR's Lauren Freyer explains. For many Brits, the world revolves around one thing. You wake up, you have a cup of tea. Yeah. You get home, you have a cup of tea. People come round, you have a cup of tea. It's a social thing, really, isn't it? Yeah. That's Nicola Tevendale and her mother Yvonne Jones shopping on London's Regent Street to basically kill time between cups of tea. How many cups of tea do you drink? Probably four. I probably have about six. <laughs> Is this genuine tea shortage? Ah, no tea. <laughs> to understand the UK's tea shortage, you have to understand where the tea in these women's mugs comes from. Mostly India, Sri Lanka, China, and Kenya. The shortest route to the UK from all of those places is through the Suez Canal. But Houthi attacks on ships near there mean some are rerouting all the way around Africa instead. Now feel free to hit pause here and go look at a map. You'll see why this adds up to 14 days of extra travel time, which means the tea aisle in some UK supermarkets is empty. We're starting to see large-scale disruption in terms of RT not preaching in time. Sparsh Agarwal is doing his part. He's a tea exporter based in Darjeeling, India. The cost of sending it uh, has also increased. We still have, for example, certain amounts of teas that are just lying in the harbor, which hmm. are just waiting to be picked up. In an almost military-like statement to NPR, Tetley, the UK's biggest tea company, says it is closely monitoring the situation, implementing mitigation. We've got tea on the ground, it says. 
tea trade routes date back to the British Empire. Few things have affected our history more than a nice cup of tea. And so does the British taste for it, says Satnam Sanghera, who writes books about imperial history. Tea, he says. It was a commodity that the East India Company could make a huge money out of, importing it from China. It was incredibly profitable for the British imperialists to sell it to the British. So much so that by the 1930s... An average British person drank nine cups of tea a day. And as the Second World War approached... The government at the time was so nervous about tea supply that they began planning for rationing because it was deemed possibly damaging to national morale if British people didn't get their tea. This time, the British Retail Consortium says the disruption to the national black tea supply is only temporary and minimal. Agarwal in Darjeeling says he has no doubt supply chains will be restored. (laughs) If history says anything, it's that the British addiction to tea is not going down. On the streets of London, Shahira Amra and her friend Mel De Beck are talking about panic buying. You know how Americans buy up toilet paper and milk at the first hint of a hurricane or snowstorm? Well, the equivalent here is tea. It's kind of like a comfort drink. They're going to go out and buy it. It's just the panic syndrome, isn't it? So by virtue of me asking you these questions, are you about to go out and stock up? Oh, I'm going to have a look anyway. <laughs> Make sure I've got my supply in. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, London. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's been a tough year for high school seniors figuring out how to pay for college. That's because this year's FAFSA, or the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, had a bungled rollout, leaving students less time to fill it out and then to calculate how much college will actually cost. The delayed FAFSA is making the process more complicated, not just for students, but also for those who are trying to help them. From GBH in Boston, Kirk Carapeza reports. Surrounded by many college pennants, counselor Caitlin Cerna puts in the long hours assisting students struggling with college expenses. She meets with them one-on-one inside her cramped office at the Henderson Inclusion School here in Boston's Dorchester neighborhood. Can we just open up the dock? Which, which one? The dock, the supplement dock. Oh. The delayed and troubled rollout of this year's FAFSA has left Cerna scrambling to help her seniors fill out these forms before they make their college decisions in May. First, the government came out with the new form at the end of December, three months later than expected. Then, once it was out, it contained a big mistake calculating how much federal aid students would get. It didn't account for inflation. Fixing that blip could now delay award letters until April, at the earliest. Cerna says trying to help dozens of students complete all of this paperwork by college's financial aid deadlines has been time-consuming and frustrating. I want to provide the best college and career support for my students that I can. I'm only one person, and we only really have, like, the school day. So it's just time is limited, and working one-on-one with students is the most effective way to reach them. And I fear there will be some students who fall through the cracks. Some students might not get the attention they need filling out the notoriously complicated form and just give up. Others might not choose to go to college at all if they don't know what kind of federal aid they qualify for soon. This all comes as fewer Americans are choosing college straight out of high school, in part because they say it's unaffordable. It's a huge mess. Bob Bardwell is executive director of the Massachusetts School Counselors Association. He says students in wealthy suburbs tend to have more college advising, whether it's public school counselors 
or paid private advisors. There are definitely going to be haves and have-nots, but it's just poor timing. The three-month delayed release of the FAFSA could result in fewer students enrolling. Brendan Williams is a vice president with the nonprofit USPIRE, which works with school counselors. He points out most students in the U.S. need to know what college will cost before committing. It could force them to make decisions that they didn't really want to make because most folks cannot afford to pay out of pocket for college. The Education Department announced recently it would provide additional funding to help high-need colleges hire more staff to process applications more quickly. Speaking to reporters, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona said the new form, although late, is transformational. We know some colleges will struggle with this more than others. We're determined to get it right. We must and we will. The strategy, though, won't directly help high school counselors on the front lines. Please, only seniors are here allowed. Back at the Henderson School in Dorchester, Caitlin Serna is the only college counselor for about 70 seniors. Most of them say they plan to go to college, so that's a lot of paperwork. Were you able to get some work done on the Fitchburg supplement? I'm trying my best out here to get almost like 100% completion rate, but it's still really just me. For now, the messy FAFSA rollout has left students like Harry Ramlochin in limbo. You want to go to a school that offers like good money, but also you're getting a good education. With the delayed FAFSA, though, he'll have less time to decide where to go to college and how to pay for it. For NPR News, I'm Kurt Carapeza in Boston. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. We look at how Hollywood plans to bring audiences to theaters this spring, coming up in about 25 minutes here at 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Bruins pulled off a win over the Dallas Stars today in a matinee at the Garden. The Bees won 4-3 in a shootout. In women's hockey, Boston is hosting Ottawa today, right now, in fact, at the Sanga Center in Lowell. Red Sox are bringing closing pitcher Liam Hendricks on board for a two-year deal. He made headlines last year with the Chicago White Sox when he made a comeback after he was treated for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Hendricks won't be ready to pitch until this summertime as he recovers from Tommy John's surgery. And also, Red Sox will reportedly wear uniform patches this season to honor the late Tim Wakefield. The longtime pitcher died last year from brain cancer. He was 57. The Boston Herald reports the pitch. Uh, the patch will feature number 49, which Wakefield wore in his 17 seasons for the Sox. This is 90.9 WBUR, clear tonight, down around 19 degrees, sunny tomorrow in the mid-30s once again. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Winter Experience, celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres. Starts February 22nd. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Emmy Award-winning journalist Hala Garani is a Syrian-American, raised around the world, still searching for her identity. I was born here. I was raised there. You know, I speak so many languages. I count in French. I dream in Arabic. I work in English. Garani talks to Morning Edition about that search for belonging and the way it shaped who she is as a journalist. On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Latin America's growing evangelical Christian movement is often courted by right-wing politicians who share the faith's conservative social agenda. But things are different in Venezuela. As the country gears up for a crucial presidential election, Venezuela's left-wing regime is making a play for the evangelical vote. Reporter John Otis has more. Hola, hermano. Here in the western city of Barinas, evangelical pastor Wenceslao Mendez operates on a shoestring. To attract people to his sermons, he pedals around on a bicycle, speaking through a PA system mounted on the handlebars. His church is a one-room shack still under construction. But over the past year, Mendez has received free bags of cement from the Venezuelan government, as well as concrete blocks and cans of yellow paint. Before the building materials arrived, he says, this church was just a roof, but now all four walls have gone up. The donations have come through a government program that is refurbishing thousands of evangelical churches across Venezuela. The government is also providing small cash stipends to 13,000 pastors, and it has pledged to build an evangelical university. At a televised summit with pastors last year, an upbeat affair with plenty of music, Nicolas Maduro, Venezuela's authoritarian leader, vowed to do even more for evangelicals. Yo soy un pastor también. El pastor mayor de Venezuela. I am also a pastor, Maduro said, the grand pastor of Venezuela. This outreach to evangelicals, who make up about one-fifth of Venezuela's population, may seem like an odd development. Evangelicals are often family values conservatives who support right-wingers. In neighboring Brazil, for example, they helped elect conservative Jair Bolsonaro in that country's 2018 presidential election. By contrast, Maduro leads a socialist regime that has cozied up to Cuba. What's more, Maduro's predecessor, the late President Hugo Chavez, often clashed with religious leaders who criticized his government. This is Chavez in a 2007 speech calling Venezuela's Roman Catholic bishops devils and vagabonds. Chavez died of cancer in 2013. Since then, Maduro has rolled back democratic freedoms in Venezuela and led the country into its worst economic crisis in history. All this has made him deeply unpopular at a time when Maduro is pledging to hold a free and fair presidential election later this year. This could convince the U.S. to fully lift economic sanctions against his country. But in a clean election, analysts say Maduro would be the underdog, which is why he's reaching out to evangelicals. Those pastors will get you votes because those pastors do direct their church members to go in a certain direction and they follow. That's Javier Corrales, a Venezuela expert at Amherst College. He points out that the Maduro regime is actually quite conservative on social issues. Venezuela has one of Latin America's most restrictive abortion laws, while same-sex marriage is illegal. This is an old-fashioned, militant, homophobic government. And then there is the political marriage with evangelicals. They know that as long as you're feeding them this type of social conservatism, 
they will not abandon you. At Maduro's evangelical summit, the pastors were squarely in the president's camp. Enrique Villalba, who heads one of Venezuela's largest evangelical churches, told Maduro, we are praying for you and your family. So is Mendez, the pastor at the half-built church back in Barinas. He admits that Venezuela has weathered extremely hard times under Maduro. But the fact that Maduro is still in power, he says, proves that God's on his side. For NPR News, I'm John Otis in Barinas, Venezuela. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Julie Silverman. In 2018, Silverman developed a bad cough. She went to multiple doctors. No one could figure out what was causing it. As the mystery continued, Silverman went to her allergist's office for weekly allergy shots. And that is where I met Allison. She started as a nurse practitioner there. And she did a couple evaluations of me, and she was really kind of perplexed by this cough. And, um, you know, she was often asking me how I was doing and I had at this point gotten kind of dismissive about it because I had been dismissed by so many doctors as there's nothing wrong. It's just you're not responding to our treatments. So we'll try something else and et cetera, et cetera. So as more time goes by, I was in there one day and Allison was noting that I sounded much worse, a very hoarse voice, very breathless, wheezing along with my coughing. And she was just adamant something was wrong with me. And so she went and got one of the physicians and said, you need to do a scope and look at her tracheas. I I just know something is wrong. So a physician came in. He agreed. My voice sounded very odd. And he did a scope, took a bunch of pictures and pulled it out. And I could just tell by their faces, you know, something was not right. And he told me I have something called idiopathic subglottic stenosis. Idiopathic meaning they don't know where it came from. Subglottic is in the top of my trachea, right below my vocal cords. And stenosis, of course, is a narrowing of um, uh, the airway or the passageway. So I had scar tissue occluding my trachea. It was about 75% blocked with scar tissue. So I was literally breathing through a straw. This is a very rare condition. It only happens to about 1 in 400,000 people. So this condition is... um, of course, very serious and, you know, fatal if not treated because your airway completely closes and, you know, you're lucky if you can get to an emergency room where they can figure out what's happening. So it's a complex condition. But had Allison not picked up on the fact that she was sure something else was wrong and gotten at this physician to look in my throat, um, I don't know what would have happened. I think I would have continued to be dismissed. I was kind of dismissing it at that time too, feeling like, well, this is just what I have. It's just the way I sound. It's just the way I breathe. And um, I feel like had she not gotten to me when she did, um, I may not be here now telling the story. It was her persistence and diligence and her listening to me and taking me seriously that got my diagnosis in a, in a timely enough fashion to do something about it. So um, for these reasons, Allison is my unsung hero. Julie Silverman of Flagstaff, Arizona. And you can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. 
Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options. At Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From Subaru, who along with its retailers, is partnering with Operation Warm to provide more than 150,000 children in need with new necessities like coats, shoes, and socks. Subaru, more than a car company. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is WBUR. Weather's looking pretty good for school vacation week. Just keep the mittens around. Tonight should be clear and dry, cold falling to about 19 degrees. Tomorrow, a lot like today has been mostly sunny, temperatures in the mid-30s. Wednesday, a few clouds move in, but the sunshine should stick around, temperatures leaning toward 40 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 459. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business helping businesses go further with Internet and phone solutions designed to prepare them for the future. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Donald Trump is facing hundreds of millions of dollars in legal judgments, and tapping campaign funds probably won't solve his money problem. The size of these penalties are so significant that I don't think that he's going to be able to raise enough to make a serious dent in what he owes. It's Monday, February 19th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story is coming up. Also, a Russian opposition activist has hopes for a better Russia in the wake of the death last week of Vladimir Putin's most outspoken critic, Alexei Navalny. A woman was unable to schedule an abortion before her sixth week of pregnancy in her home state of South Carolina. She is suing the latest challenge to the state's so-called fetal heartbeat abortion ban. These stories and the forecast are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden says he's open to meeting with House Speaker Mike Johnson to discuss legislation that would provide additional aid for Ukraine. NPR's Mara Eliasson reports the supplemental funding remains stalled in Congress. Today, President Biden said Republicans are making a big mistake holding up the aid as Ukraine is running out of ammunition in its fight against the Russian invasion. The Senate passed a foreign aid bill that included Ukraine funding by a big bipartisan majority, but that bill is stalled in the House. Even though a big majority of the House also supports Ukraine aid, a majority of Republicans oppose it, as does the GOP's presidential frontrunner, former President Donald Trump. And that puts Speaker Mike Johnson in a difficult position. Johnson says he wants to help Ukraine, but he hasn't yet figured out how to overcome resistance from his own party. Mara Liason, NPR News. 
The U.N. Security Council will meet again on Gaza tomorrow. The U.S. opposes one draft resolution that the council is considering, so Washington has proposed an alternate draft. NPR's Michelle Kellerman has more. The U.S. ambassador to the United Nations has been warning the council not to do anything that could further complicate diplomatic efforts to get Israeli hostages out of Gaza in exchange for a ceasefire. So the U.S. has now drafted a resolution that calls for a temporary ceasefire based on the, quote, formula of all hostages being released. It also calls for the lifting of all barriers to humanitarian aid for Palestinians in Gaza. The draft resolution echoes concerns by many about a possible Israeli ground offensive in Rafah in southern Gaza, where more than a million Palestinians are sheltering. The U.S. warns that Israel needs a viable plan to protect civilians there. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres says the Taliban were excluded from a two-day meeting in Doha on the future of Afghanistan because demands they made for the meeting format were not acceptable to the world body. These conditions, first of all, denied us the right to talk to other representatives of the Afghan society and um, uh, demanded a uh, treatment that would, I would say, to a large extent, be similar to recognition. The U.N. leader says it would be helpful to have the Taliban at the meetings, and he says he hopes they can work out terms on new conditions for future meetings. The Taliban seized power in 2021 as U.S. and NATO forces withdrew following two decades of war. Wall Street is closed today in observance of President's Day. Stocks are poised to open lower tomorrow. You're listening to NPR News. Rwanda is questioning a recent statement from the U.S. that criticized it over escalating violence in Democratic Republic of Congo. Michael Koloki has more. Rwanda said it will seek clarification from the U.S. government regarding the statement it issued over the weekend. The U.S. had said it blames the escalating violence in the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo on the M23 rebel group, which it says is supported by Rwanda. The M23, which was formed a little more than a decade ago, has been involved in a number of intense clashes with Congolese forces over the past year. Rwanda has continuously denied claims it supports the M23. Thousands of people have been displaced from their homes as a result of the fighting. The violence has also disrupted food supplies that are relied on by more than 2 million people. For NPR News, I'm Michael Kaloki in Nairobi. Researchers are tracking a gray wolf that traveled through three countries to reach Spain, the longest journey ever documented for that species. Researchers trace the fecal droppings of the male wolf from Germany, where he was born, through France to northern Spain. He was last detected a year ago. The rising number of wolves across Europe has led to conflicts with local farming and hunting communities on measures to prevent attacks on livestock, prompting the European Commission to review the wolves' strictly protected status. European markets ended the day in mixed territory. The DAX in Germany down about one-tenth of a percent. The FTSE up about two-tenths of a percent. You're listening to NPR News from Washington.
And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. This is February Vacation Week, and many schools across the state are closed, but not in Newton. Students have today off, but they'll head back to class tomorrow to start making up for the 11 school days lost to the Newton teacher strike. School will be in session all week there. Ashley Raven is a teacher in Newton and acknowledges the cancellation of February break might be difficult for some families and educators. But we went into the action of taking a strike really intentionally to be able to fight for the education that our students need and deserve and for a contract that values and compensates and respects the work that educators do. The Newton School Committee is considering whether to cancel part of April vacation as well to make up for the lost days. Four Brockton School Committee members are asking for help from the National Guard to restore order to the city schools. The group wrote a letter to the mayor and school committee chair making the request. It says students have been wandering the halls using drugs and getting into fights at school. Teachers have also been calling out of work. The mayor says he doesn't support calling in the National Guard. Governor Maura Healy says she's in touch with Brockton officials on the issue. Chelsea and Everett will share $750,000 in federal funds to help prevent coastal flooding caused by climate change. The cities have seen increased severe flooding in recent years. Chelsea City Manager Fidel Maltese says the project includes building a retaining wall along the Chelsea waterfront. What's more exciting is that uh, at the top of that wall, we are going to build a, some green space and a park. It is going to uh, really improve the, the lives of our residents in Chelsea. Maltese says the federal funding is just a start. He says the city's entire climate resiliency plan will cost $50 million to complete. 35 degrees now in Boston. Looks as if today's weather set the scene for the next few days. Clear skies tonight in the upper teens. Tomorrow, sunny and dry in the mid-30s again. Could have sunshine and some fair weather clouds on Wednesday as well, inching up to the high 30s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Again, 35 degrees in Boston at 5.08. Support for NPR comes from the Public Welfare Foundation committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macbound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. More than half a billion dollars and counting. That is the bill that former President Trump is facing now in recent legal penalties. It includes $450 million that Trump has been ordered to pay to the state of New York in a civil fraud trial, plus another $83 million that he owes the writer E. Jean Carroll from a defamation trial. Now, Trump is worth much more than half a billion dollars if you add up all his real estate holdings, golf clubs, resorts, and personal assets. But these legal judgments will strip away a huge chunk from his fortune and could eat up most or all of his available cash. Here to talk more about all of this is Dan Alexander at Forbes. He's tracked Donald Trump's wealth over the years and joins us now. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So how much cash or about how much cash does Trump have on hand now to pay these judgments before he would have to start selling off any properties, you think? So right now, Trump has roughly $400 million in cash. When you say cash, I mean, understand this is liquid assets. So stocks, bonds, things that he could easily sell off. He obviously has significant assets outside of that, but the liquid assets would be the first thing that he would dispose of. And uh, it doesn't take a strong mathematician 
to pay the penalties he's facing. Exactly. Okay. so in terms of timing, you know, Trump is appealing both of these decisions that we've mentioned. So how much money is actually due right now? Yeah, so he basically has to put up or secure the cash for all of it in short order. However, he can secure a bond, which is basically a financial institution would say, hey, you you put up a little bit now and we will guarantee the ability to pay all of this. And then once you sort out whatever you're going to do with your assets, we expect to be made whole with interest. That's a pricey option. There are other sorts of loans that he could take. For instance, Donald Trump knows a lot of rich people, and he could call up somebody tomorrow and say, hey, would you like to put a $50 million mortgage on Mar-a-Lago, which doesn't have a mortgage right now? And you could imagine a lot of people who might be interested for financial or political reasons in gaining leverage over somebody who could become president of the United States again in a year. Well, on the bond part, how likely do you think Trump will be able to secure a bond, given some of his past troubles with lenders? Well, so there are many lenders who would not consider this at all, just as there are many lenders who would never consider a more traditional loan against any one of his properties because Mm -hmm. of his reputation and his past practices. However, remember, people who lend money are eager to make money. So I do think that he would be able to find someone who would be willing to take the other side of this bet. And just to step back for a moment, what are the consequences if Trump simply does not pay these judgments? So my understanding is that they're different in different jurisdictions. And in New York State, I believe that they can actually just start seizing assets. Of course, New York State is the court in which the largest judgment, the fraud judgment, is due. And New York authorities are accustomed to seizing assets. Um, I don't think that that's a likely thing. I think that we're going to see him put up the cash or secure a bond or other type of loan to do that. How much do you think these pretty weighty financial penalties will ultimately affect his ability to run a presidential campaign and and win back the White House? I don't think that they will affect his ability to run a presidential campaign. Donald Trump, after 2016, has put exactly zero dollars of his own money into his campaigns, despite being worth you know, more than almost anybody else running for office, including many people who are putting in a couple million there or a couple million there. Now, the question is, when you get into a general election, will people say, wait a second, this is a guy who owes half of a billion dollars in legal penalties. Maybe he's not the right guy to run the country, but I don't know how significantly it's going to hurt him. Nothing has been a knockout punch for Donald Trump so far. I don't think this will be either. Dan Alexander is a senior editor at Forbes. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Vladimir Putin's regime is less steadfast than it seems. That is the assessment of Alexei Minyailo. He's a Russian opposition activist based in Moscow. In a piece for Foreign Affairs headlined, Don't Give Up on a Better Russia, Minyailo lays out a number of ways to engineer an end to Putin's role. Well, the piece published back in December, so before the death of Russia's most prominent opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, from Moscow, Yailao joins me to discuss where dissent in Russia goes now. Welcome. Hello, Mary Louise. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. So the title of this article that you've written, again, it's Don't Give Up on a Better Russia. Do you still feel that even after the events of last week, even after Navalny's death? Yes, of course. As much as leaders are important, democracy depends on regular 
people, uh, not just on super big figures, on symbolic figures, and on leaders of political parties or of opposition. If uh, we would say that, oh, Navalny died, so now there will be no democracy in Russia, that means that all, all our job was futile and all that Alexei did was futile, but it is not so. I I will note, you have spent time in prison. You've been arrested. You've been held uh, for your opposition work. Obviously, that has not deterred you. You're still speaking out. How hard an argument is that to make today to other people in Russia to hold strong, keep fighting? Well, it's not easy, but that's when uh, the personal example works. And uh, that's uh, essentially, I think, uh, that's one of the main things Navalny did. He uh, set a personal example that a person of oppositional convictions can put his freedom on the line, put his life on the line to stand up for a better Russia. I'm, I'm not saying that everyone should do this, but definitely such examples are very important because they empower us to do more for democratization of Russia. So let me put to you a couple of the challenges. Um, this past weekend, saw hundreds of people in Russia arrested, detained for protesting or simply for coming out to mourn Navalny. Um, this has prompted fears of perhaps an even more severe crackdown before presidential elections there in Russia next month. Does it cause you in any way to rethink your belief that a better Russia is possible? This is all uh, expected. Uh, and uh, as much uh, as it is dramatic or even tragic, as in case with uh, Alexei's assassination, it is not unexpected, not something that turns the table. So, uh, of course, it is hard. But uh, we knew that uh, such things would come to be, that Putin will kill more of his opponents, that more repressions uh, will follow for, for some time before the regime weakens. It all happens. It all might happen further. And maybe in a year when you reach out to talk with me about something else, you won't be able to because I will be in prison or uh, something else uh, might happen. Uh, but that doesn't change the big situation. The, the regime is running out of fuel. But explain that. Those of us watching from the outside, it's very hard to see that there's any real challenge to his power, that it's not something approaching absolute. Uh, for 20 years, he was stashing the surplus income from selling the gas and the oil. Uh, it's called Fund of National Wealth. For two years, he was spending around $50, $60 billion from this fund. Uh, and uh, if this continues, he will run out of these extra funds. Uh, and the harsh truth is that most of Putin's reign, ordinary people were... Uh, getting better and better lives because of this oil excess money. But uh, for some time, the economy is stagnating. When he runs out of money, he will have much harder time solving these problems, which will lead to more and more people being unhappy with the regime. And that will impose a more severe threat to his power than activists laying flowers uh, to uh, commemorate uh, Navalny. Alexei Navalny's wife, Yulia released a video today. This is her pledging to carry on his work. She's saying, I will continue the work of Alexei Navalny. I will continue to fight for our country. And I encourage you to stand by my side. What role do you see for her? I don't know. Time will show. Uh, uh, history 
uh, knows a lot of examples uh, when wives of key opponents of the autocrats that uh, their wives actually became prominent politicians themselves. So uh, Yulia can very well do that uh, as well. It's totally possible. I want to ask about you. You are speaking to me from Moscow. You're speaking very critically of Vladimir Putin and his role. How dangerous is that? I don't know. We'll see. Every time I'm saying something, I'm thinking, uh, what will be the result? Will it change anything for the better? And uh, then somehow try to uh, weigh the risks uh, as well. How risky is saying this or that? So uh, I have to do this. Do you, especially now, in the wake of the death of Navalny, do you ever wake up afraid? Well, uh, I no longer feel it on a constant basis, but uh, I'm afraid of a lot of things that might happen uh, to, to me, to my family. Uh, two things help me. Uh, one is keeping in mind what all of this is for. Alexei Navalny is a great example because he believed that Russia can be democratic, can be free, can be friendly to its neighbors. Uh, that, that's one thing. I always remember uh, what I'm risking for. And second, uh, you know, I had two grandfathers, one Russian, one Ukrainian. Uh, they both fought Hitler. And I believe that was immensely more dangerous than what I'm doing now. Still, they went on with it and they did it. They won. Uh, so I must go on also with this and I must do my best like they did. That's Alexei Minyaylo. He's a Russian opposition activist speaking to us today from Moscow. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up. In about 20 minutes on WBUR, adult dancers in Washington state say draconian laws make it tough for them to work, and they want a bill of rights to address their issues. That's still ahead. WBUR supporters include Mass General Brigham Health Plan, offering innovative plans, comprehensive coverage, and a broad network of doctors, all connected to one of the world's leading health care systems. Mass General Brigham Health Plan, with you every day. For more information, call your broker or visit MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. Wall Street is closed today in honor of President's Day. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Groton Hill Music Center, presenting Nickel Creek live March 15th. Dining and free parking less than an hour from Boston. GrottonHill.org slash tickets. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. It's been a chilly but beautiful holiday. 35 degrees now in Boston. Should be a lot chillier tonight, down around 19 degrees. Tomorrow could bring more sunshine, about 34 degrees at the highest. Sunshine comes back for Wednesday. If few more clouds move in, we could come close to 40 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 521. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food, from employee meal plans to on-site staffing with corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. From Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your Part-Time Controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person, at yptc.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Most years in mid-February, Hollywood is talking about how to keep its box office momentum going. And this year, January was so lackluster, film studios will have to jumpstart movie-going from scratch. Happily, as critic Bob Mondello reports in his spring movie preview, they have lots of strategies. Hollywood's guiding principle is that what'll work is what has worked. Reload! Meaning sequels. Paul Atreides is still alive. Dune Part 2 picks up Denis Villeneuve's epic saga in mid-rebellion with Timothy Chalamet. Look who's back from the dead. Finally riding a giant sandworm. No do what must be done. He'll join a number of more experienced sequel returnees at the multiplex. I'm Furiosa! The darkest of angels. Furiosa's in Part 5 of the Mad Max series. The question is, if you have it in you to make it epic? Of course she does. There's also a Ghostbusters 5 featuring original Ghostbusters Dan Aykroyd, Ernie Hudson, and Bill Murray. Call dark and horny at 12 o'clock. An animated Kung Fu Panda 4. Stand back. I'm gonna kick my butt. A 10th film in the Planet of the Apes series. Humans, they fear what they do not understand. And all of those are mere sequels come lately next to what is both the 13th film starring everybody's favorite giant ape. Kong can't stop this on his own. And the 38th outing. He won't be alone. For Japan's King of the Monsters, it's called Godzilla Times Kong. Talk about going back to the well. Which is not to suggest that everything this spring will be familiar. Mr. President, do you regret the use of airstrikes against American citizens? The politically charged thriller Civil War follows journalist Kirsten Dunst into a plausibly alarming near future in which a president is refusing to step down and 19 states have seceded from the Union. Every time I survived a war zone, I thought I was sending a warning home. Don't do this. But here we are. Civil War is the brainchild of the guy who wrote the dystopian thrillers 28 Days Later and Ex Machina. Zendaya is at the center of a tennis-oriented civil war between her husband and her former lover, who was also his best friend in Challengers. I assume you planned this? Not this part. Action of a less cataclysmic sort can be found in the comedy The Fall Guy, in which Ryan Gosling is a Hollywood stuntman who is pressed to use his talents in the real world. The biggest action star on the planet is missing. You need to bring him back. Why me? You're a stuntman. Nobody's going to notice you. That's your job. No offense. I mean, some taken. Turns out he does get noticed. They were trying to kill me, and not in a fun way. It's a lion that's trying to kill Idris Elba and his family in Beast. And in Kristen Stewart's lesbian thriller, Love Lies Bleeding, the killer is crime boss Ed Harris. If you touch her, I'm going to tell them everything you ever did. Are you threatening me? Threats are also central to the Australian police procedural Limbo, the twisted crime comedy Leroy about a guy who's mistaken for a hitman and decides to be a hitman, and a French film produced during the pandemic about a virus. Lorraine Animal, the animal kingdom, is about a disease that causes wing-sprouting, scale-growing mutations in humans and a 16-year-old's response when his mother and then he get infected. Animal Kingdom is more about family than about its mutation gimmick, just as the Macedonian film Housekeeping for Beginners is more about a queer family's strength and love than it is about housekeeping. <laughs> it's an inspirational tale about caring for others. So is One Life, in which Anthony Hopkins plays a Schindler-like figure, recalling his efforts to save refugees from the Nazis in his youth. Do you ever think about the children and what happened to them? <laughs> 
A more contemporary inspiration is Hard Miles, in which social worker Matthew Modine drags disgruntled teen convicts on a character-building thousand-mile bike ride. You can limp across the road right now. None of this will have mattered. Or you could set a goal today and know that nobody told you what you could or couldn't be. Mark Wahlberg sets a goal in Arthur the King. He's an endurance racer on a 400-mile trek through a Caribbean jungle who inadvertently adopts a dog named Arthur. Let's talk and get the meatballs. Three days, 200 miles ago. Leave the stupid dog and let's go. Actually, the dog adopts him. Good thing, too. What is it, boy? Oh. Oh, God. Can't believe I almost walked right off that cliff. Extra meatballs for you, my friend. Arthur the King is a true story, and so is an inspirational family saga, Unsung Hero, which follows a seven-child Christian household as it moves from Australia to the U.S. There's no food, and we're almost out of money. We need to make some changes. Kids, we need your help. Kids to the rescue. It's the Smallbone family, whose children would become some of the most successful Grammy-winning artists in the history of inspirational music. Also centering a community of faith, the story of Roman Catholic missionary and future saint, Francesca Cabrini. I need an orphanage with more room, where my children can be children. Arriving from Italy in the 1880s, she encountered anti-immigrant resistance. I'd like you to keep your crime and your filth out of this neighborhood. And she met it. The mayor will find a way to get you out. With fierce determination. You have an election coming up, do you not? I believe I'm being threatened by a nun. Cabrini comes from the team that created last year's grassroots hit, Sound of Freedom. A troubled public housing project that was named after that nun is the setting for We Grown Now, a coming-of-age film set in the 1990s. And Cabrini Green, it don't matter how old you are, how much money you got, how big or tall. You ever think about what it would be like outside of here? Wow, this is where we're from. Such a big road out there. That big world can be a world of trouble, including a town in Ireland that resists the arrival of Syrian refugees. We can't even look after our road. In Ken Loach's The Old Oak, and the troubled world of addiction that led to the short, tragic life of a troubled singer. In the biopic Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Does all of this sound a little dark and chilly, considering the weather's about to turn warm? Well, there are also spring comedies, including a Who Done It, or maybe I should say a Who Sent It. The mystery of the obscene little Hampton letters is causing widespread distress across the nation. Wicked Little Letters is about very proper English folks who say very improper things. What would you say? You look like Queen Victoria Show. <gasps> you daft old... Other comedies, other buttons to push. Immigration, for instance. Problemista finds comedian and Los Spookies creator Julio Torres looking for visa sponsorship from Tilda Swinton. I'm actually from El Salvador. Pupusas. Yes. And those uh, nuns they killed in the 80s. Right. Then there's the racial satire with a provocative title. The American Society of Magical Negroes. A comic riff built on Spike Lee's snarky term for black characters who are created with the sole purpose of helping out white characters. We fight white discomfort every day because the happier they are, the safer we are. The name needs a little updating, maybe like magical black people, or I guess. Yeah, I won't fix it. Possibly the oddest spring comedy is Sasquatch Sunset, which stars Jesse Eisenberg and several other famous folks you won't recognize because their faces are covered in fur and they speak only in grunts and the occasional sneeze. There are also a couple of comedies aimed at family audiences, one starring a very lazy cat named Garfield. You ever jumped a train? I've never jumped. 
the other giving life to ifs who come in all shapes and sizes. I'm an if. Get it? Imaginary? Friend? You could save all of us. All of whom? And don't say ifs. Let him say it or I think his head may actually explode. Thank you. You ready for this? Exactly what I was going to ask. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lesley University. Put your creativity to work with a fine arts degree from Lesley University. Invest in your passion at lesley.edu. And Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord helping transform your outdated, unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. You follow the news every day on WBUR, but how well do you really know the news? It's time to play the puzzle. One across, digital trash. Five letters, south of Ecuador. Play the WBUR crossword puzzle anytime at WBUR.org fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Eagle Pass, Texas, construction on a controversial state military camp is moving forward after Governor Greg Abbott gave the green light last week. Their mission is secure, to secure the Texas portion of the Mexico southern border. The facility will span about 80 acres along the Rio Grande and house up to 23,000 National Guard soldiers. As uh, Pablo de la Rosa of Texas Public Radio tells us, it's the latest escalation in a tug-of-war between the Biden administration and Texas. This town, Eagle Pass, has gone through so much over the past few weeks and months. Uh, you know, since Texas took over Shelby Park by the Rio Grande, kicking out the federal government. This is a, a public community space where, you know, people celebrate birthdays. They've celebrated Easter. Now it's totally militarized. The Texas governor has argued that the state has a right to secure its border, but constitutionally that's always fallen under control of the federal government. Texas is still waiting to get a ruling on that matter from the Supreme Court. A member of Israel's war cabinet says a military operation in Gaza's southernmost city would take place in about three weeks unless Hamas releases Israeli hostages. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more. One of the leading members of Israel's war cabinet, Minister Benny Gantz, called on Hamas to release Israeli hostages before the beginning of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan in mid-March. If by Ramadan hostages are not home, the fighting will continue everywhere to include Rafah area. Israel vows to send troops to Rafah, where the majority of Gaza's population is now sheltering. The U.S. opposes such an operation without a plan to safely evacuate Palestinian civilians. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization says a main southern Gaza hospital is no longer functional. That's NPR's Daniel Estrin. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Four members of the Brockton School Committee are calling for the National Guard to be deployed at the city's high school. WBUR's Amy Sokolow explains why. The group wrote in a letter to the mayor that students are wandering the halls, getting in fights, and using drugs. The committee members also say teachers have been calling out of work in response. 
School committee member Tony Rodriguez says he's looking for National Guard members to serve as substitute teachers and hall monitors. We do need to take our schools back into control and making sure that our students have a safe learning environment because what's going on at the high school is disheartening and kids are losing precious learning time when kids are causing chaos. Brockton Mayor Robert Sullivan says he doesn't support the use of the National Guard in schools. Governor Maura Healy says she's in touch with local officials about the issue. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. More rush hour buses run late than run on time in the Nubian Square hub in Roxbury. A Boston Globe analysis finds that last month eight routes were late more than half the time. The worst offenders were routes 8 and 47. They were tardy 86 percent of the time. An MBTA spokesperson tells the Globe that the agency is working to redesign routes and hire more drivers to help with the issue. New Hampshire officials are warning hikers to be careful out there. Crews had to rescue at least three hikers this weekend who were injured on trails. New Hampshire Fish and Game says prepare for hikes with items such as maps and extra food. Also assess the safety of the hike throughout your trip. The forecast is coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Coolidge Corner Theater, a cultural treasure in the heart of Brookline since 1933. Experience the best contemporary and classic films in two new state-of-the-art theaters and enjoy film education programs and special events in their new community engagement center, opening soon. Learn more at Coolidge.org. 33 degrees in Boston. Now sunset today in Boston is 635. Should be a clear night tonight. Temperatures all the way down to about 19 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine again, 34 degrees at the highest. Sun comes back for Wednesday. A few more clouds move in. We could come close to 40 degrees. Again, 33 in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older. NPRWineClub.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. In South Carolina, a woman forced to travel out of state for an abortion has joined Planned Parenthood in a lawsuit seeking to clarify the state's abortion ban. Lawmakers say the ban begins at six weeks once cardiac activity is detected, but the suit argues it should start at least three weeks later and could have made a difference for the plaintiff. South Carolina Public Radio's Victoria Hansen reports. Taylor Shelton says she isn't ready to be a mother. She's in her 20s and uses birth control, an intrauterine device, or IUD, said to be more than 99% effective. She had just gotten the device checked by a doctor when she missed her period in September. When I found out I was pregnant, I was shocked, to say the least. Shelton and her boyfriend wanted an abortion. But South Carolina's fetal heartbeat ban had just taken effect. I thought, luckily, I'm under six weeks. This shouldn't be hard. And then it turned out to be unbelievably hard. First, Shelton called her gynecologist. She asked the receptionist for help getting an abortion. Do you know where I can get the help? Do you have any resources for me? And each answer from her was no, no, no. Next, Shelton called Planned Parenthood, which has two abortion clinics in the state. 
but the band had left them overwhelmed. They could not see Shelton before six weeks. So she searched the internet and found a pregnancy center in North Carolina, four hours away. That state has a 12-week ban, requiring two appointments, one for an ultrasound, the second for an abortion. Shelton says the center told her they could see her quickly and perform the ultrasound. But when she arrived with her mother, she says, they tried to convince her not to have an abortion. It was anything that they could prevent me from the idea of an abortion, and abortion is bad. When Shelton told the counselor she wanted an abortion, she says the center would no longer give her an ultrasound. And it turns out that this place was a fake abortion clinic, an anti-abortion clinic. Shelton left in tears. She finally connected with Planned Parenthood in North Carolina. And after two more trips, Shelton got an abortion at six weeks, four days. I don't know, it's just, it's so surreal. Like I could have never seen this happening to me. And now that it has, I mean, I'm just like, my blood is boiling about it. Shelton is suing the state with Planned Parenthood. Vicki Ringer works for Planned Parenthood South Atlantic. All they've done is inflict cruel and unusual punishment on women and girls who are just trying to get health care. Ringer calls South Carolina's abortion ban contradictory and vague, leaving health care providers who can face prison time scared and patients vulnerable. The ban defines a fetal heartbeat as, quote, cardiac activity or steady and repetitive rhythmic contraction of the fetal heart within the gestational sac. Ringer says that definition describes two different points in pregnancy. One, an electrical impulse at roughly six weeks. The other, an actual heart, which she says does not begin to form until at least nine weeks. This is what happens when you have legislators that try to practice medicine. It's not the first time the ban's language has been called into question. Even as the state Supreme Court upheld the law six months ago, its chief justice noted the fetal heartbeat definition is ambiguous. The plaintiffs want a state court to clarify it and allow abortions up to at least nine weeks. Planned Parenthood says they could then provide abortions for nearly 50 percent of women who need them instead of 10 percent. Before the ban, Republican lawmakers argued abortion rates were on the rise because women facing strict laws across the South sought the procedure here. State Senator Shane Massey said this last year. South Carolina has become an abortion destination state. Shelton says the ban forced her to leave her home state. The government, they want us to be responsible. Well, I'm telling you right now, I had birth control. I tracked my period. I, I took the pregnancy test as soon as possible, and even then I could not figure out how to get this procedure done. The state attorney general says his office has defended the law in the past and will continue to do so. For NPR News, I'm Victoria Hansen in Charleston, South Carolina. Not quite 70 feet below the Baltic Sea, a stunning find has swum into view. A stone wall more than half a mile long that dates back to the Stone Age. It's one of the oldest so-called megastructures on Earth. Science reporter Ari Daniel explains what it might have been used for. Finding that wall was an accident. It was 2021, and marine geologist Jakob Gerson was teaching a field course at the University of Kiel in northern Germany, a course conducted entirely aboard a research vessel on the Baltic Sea. 
During nights, we were mapping the shape of the seafloor at highest resolution. One night off the German coast, the students fired up the echo sounders and mapped a swath of seafloor. Then when we were sitting together, we saw that there was something special. It was a ridge that ran for six-tenths of a mile. A year later, Gerson, his colleagues, and a new batch of students lowered a camera down and confirmed this ridge was actually thousands of rocks lined up that formed a kind of wall standing about one and a half feet tall on average. It's usually small stones, but then at some places where we have a large stone, the direction of the wall changes. Gerson didn't know how such a structure could have formed. It was only when we went to the archaeologists that they said, you may have found something very significant. Um, I was probably the most skeptical of the entire team. Verit Eriksson is a prehistoric archaeologist at the University of Kiel. When she examined this structure, a line from Sherlock Holmes came to mind. If you have eliminated all which is impossible, then whatever remains must be the truth. Archaeologists never speak of truth. But I'm running out of things to eliminate in terms of natural stuff. Erickson reviewed the data and became convinced the structure was made by prehistoric humans who'd used lots of smaller stones to connect the larger unmovable rocks into a wall. She and others concluded it was used by hunter-gatherers some 10 to 11,000 years ago during the Stone Age to help them corral and hunt reindeer by the hundreds. The only way you can kill this amount of reindeer is if you cut them off at a pass somewhere, there would have been water at the other side. So the reindeer would have gotten trapped between the wall and the water, allowing hunters in wait to fire their arrows at the reindeer. If you build a structure like that, you're someone who knows the entire area extremely well. Ultimately, the area flooded, forming the Baltic Sea we know today and submerging this piece of hunting architecture underwater. The findings are published in the journal PNAS. I know this personally, working underwater is not easy. Ashley Lemke is an underwater archaeologist at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee who's discovered similar stone walls in Lake Huron beside Michigan. She wasn't involved in this study. Lemke says these structures highlight that people of the Stone Age may have been more sophisticated sophisticated than we tend to think. This is actually really early examples of almost animal domestication, right? Like before you start keeping animals in pens permanently, you're kind of making fences to hunt them. Leading, maybe, to livestock herding. But to confirm this wall was made by humans to hunt, more evidence is needed, like arrowheads and ancient DNA, in an effort to unite the biggest and smallest clues left behind by prehistoric people. Ari Daniel for NPR News. The Washington state legislature is considering a bill that advocates call a stripper's bill of rights. It's been championed by adult dancing activists who say Washington has archaic laws around strip clubs. From member station KUOW in Seattle, Monica Nicholsberg reports. By the time Madison Zach Wu was 18, she says she was living on her own and supporting herself. Stripping became her path to financial independence. But she quickly started to notice problems in the clubs where she worked management encouraging me to work with customers that were known to be harmful and violent even, and there was definitely a pressure to dance with them. Casey Champion, another longtime Washington dancer who has since retired, says there were other problems too. It's standard for clubs to charge strippers house fees to use the stage, 
But Champion says that the fees in Washington were more than double those in the other states where she worked, like Oregon and Nevada. I paid about $185 a day. Now, that was regardless of if I made money. So if I showed up that day and didn't have any just cash in my pocket and I didn't make any money, then I could put my debt down. She says dancers she knew sometimes racked up thousands of dollars of debt to the club. Both Madison Zakwu and Casey Champion are now activists with the organization Strippers Are Workers. The group is pushing for a bill that would do things like limit the fees clubs can charge dancers, require a security guard to be on duty, and mandate sexual harassment training for all club employees. But the bill could do something else as well, pave the way to legalize alcohol in Washington strip clubs, where it's currently banned. To illustrate why that's an issue, Zakwu and Champion take me to a strip club in Seattle. Where a bartender slings sodas while a dancer undresses on stage. Washington is the only state in the country with a complete ban on alcohol in strip clubs, according to the bill's sponsor and industry experts. The prohibition dates back to a 1970s rule that bans alcohol sales in the presence of nudity. In this strip club on a Friday night, there are only two customers in the audience. Zach Wu and Champions say that's partly because there's no drink service here. At a bar next door, which is full of customers, Zach Wu says that without revenue from alcohol, charging fees to dancers is one of the only ways clubs can make money. Without any customer volume and without any food or drink or entertainment to sell, we are the commodity. 20 Washington state senators voted against the bill before it went to the House, but none of them wanted to elaborate on their position. We also reached out to the owners of Washington's major strip clubs, but none were willing to comment. Isaac Castema, a lobbyist representing five club owner groups, also declined to comment. In public testimony, he said club owners had some reservations about how realistic the training and security requirements in the bill were, but that they were broadly supportive of its goals. Most states have figured out ways uh, to do this that I think have better outcomes than we have in Washington, so we remain optimistic. Ariela Moskowitz says if this bill passes, it could turn one of the most conservative states for stripping into one of the most progressive. She's communications director at the national advocacy organization Decriminalize Sex Work. I feel pretty confident in saying Washington probably has some of the harshest restrictions and they don't necessarily do anything to improve the health or safety of those working there or those visiting the establishment. The rule that makes it impossible for strip clubs to serve alcohol is the same one that sparked controversy last month when law enforcement officers warned managers at queer bars in Seattle about violations of the rule, like a bartender's exposed nipple. LGBTQ rights advocates have supported the new bill in public testimony. For NPR News, I'm Monica Nicholsberg in Seattle. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Tomorrow morning on WBUR, the Supreme Court will hear a case that could transform how cities address homelessness. At stake is the right to sleep outside when there's nowhere else to go. Join us tomorrow morning when you wake up. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston University Arts Initiative. Presenting the acclaimed writer David Gran, February 28th at 7 p.m. in the Psy Center. Admission is free. Reservations are required at davidgranbu.eventbrite.com. And Comcast Business, helping businesses go further with Internet and phone solutions designed to prepare them for the future. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. 
Going to be cold tonight, 19 degrees, feeling colder though. Tomorrow's sunny and pretty lovely. Temperatures in the mid-30s once again. Wednesday sunny, a few clouds move in as temperatures move up to the low 40s. We could have a wintry mix coming in on Friday. This is 90.9 WBUR, 33 degrees in Boston at 549. Boston is known for many things. Sports, the American Revolution, esteemed universities, But what does it really mean to live here? For WBUR's Field Guide to Boston, we heard from residents about moments that made them love this city. I once saw a guy trip while running for an orange line train, and his Charlie card and IDs flew like frisbees in every direction. I slid my foot between the doors to hold it open. Another guy helped the man get up. A woman in hospital scrubs collected the contents of his wallet. I grew up hearing everything from R&B, soul, jazz, Boston, space funk, house, or rap blaring out of boomboxes, cars, windows, and storefronts. One of their chefs would chat with me in Vietnamese, addressing me as younger sister. I called him older brother. To hear more love letters to Boston and to share your own, check out WBUR.org slash field guide. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. In Michigan's 12th congressional district, some of the state's largest Jewish and Muslim communities have personally felt ripples from the Israel-Hamas war. That has led members of both groups to put sometimes conflicting pressure on elected leaders. Colin Jackson of the Michigan Public Radio Network reports. When driving north on the freeway coming from Detroit, you may notice Congregation Shari Zedek, a synagogue in the suburb of Southfield out the window. It's where Rabbi Aaron Starr hosted several of Michigan's political leaders for a healing moment after the October 7th Hamas-led attack on Israel. Some 1,200 people were killed in that assault, and Hamas militants continue to hold hostages. There was so much leadership that really was speaking out about Israel's right to defend itself and our need to protect Jews everywhere around the world, that Jews shouldn't have to live in fear. One leader who did not attend the gathering was Starr's own congresswoman, Democratic Representative Rashida Tlaib. Starr says he reached out to her office following the October 7th attack. Several weeks later, he says they had a polite conversation, but he thinks Tlaib's remarks around Israel's response have been divisive. No one that I'm aware of in the Jewish community, at least none of the Jewish leaders, claim that Israel is perfect. Um, But we do think that Israel has a right to defend itself. And I would love to engage in conversation with the congresswoman uh, on a deeper level. Tlaib's office did not grant requests for an interview with NPR. Last November, the GOP-led House censured her for using rhetoric critics described as hateful. They pointed in part to a video Tlaib posted on social media that included protesters using a portion of the chant, From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. She later defended the phrase, From the river to the sea, as a, quote, aspirational call for freedom. Others consider it an anti-Semitic call for the elimination of Israel and removal of Jews. Speaking on the House floor before that censure vote, Tlaib said critics were distorting her words. No government is beyond criticism. The idea that criticizing the government of Israel is anti-Semitic sets a very dangerous precedent, and it's being used to silence diverse voices speaking up for human rights across our nation. Tlaib, the only Palestinian American serving in Congress, pointed to her own ties to the region. We are human beings. Just like anyone else, my city, my grandmother, like all Palestinians, just wants to live her life 
with freedom and human dignity we all deserve. Israel's counteroffensive into Palestinian territories has killed more than 28,000 people. That's according to Gaza health officials, who say most of the dead are women and children. Tlaib is calling for a ceasefire, but Starr argues that would allow Hamas to continue endangering Israelis. Drive about 30 minutes away from Star's synagogue to a different part of the district, you'll find Dearborn, a largely Muslim Detroit suburb where many residents do want a ceasefire. I mean, in order for, for us American Muslims to feel like we are being heard, we want to see elected officials respond in a way that's moral and just. Community organizer Samra Lukman wants her elected leaders to show solidarity with the people of Gaza. Over 85% of its population has been displaced during Israel's retaliation. That's according to Human Rights Watch. President Biden's administration is trying to negotiate another pause in fighting. That pause would be tied to Hamas releasing hostages and humanitarian aid entering Gaza. In the U.S., all of this comes against the backdrop of an election year. It's a a lost um, opportunity for any candidate if you don't take the moral high ground and, and solicit us for votes. This is a, we're going to vote in a block this time, and it's going to be with Palestine. Calls for political action are playing out in Michigan's presidential primary election. This weekend, Tlaib encouraged residents to vote uncommitted on their Democratic Party ballot rather than for Biden. It's part of a statewide campaign called Listen to Michigan that's urging voters to use the primary to push for a change in Biden's policy toward Israel and Gaza. Early voting has already begun. The primary is next Tuesday. For NPR News, I'm Colin Jackson in Detroit. When Hurricane Idalia slammed into Florida in August, a nearly seven-foot storm surge battered the fishing community of Cedar Key. But when the water receded, scientists actually found some good news. Nature-based projects had protected roads, buildings, and other structures from the worst of the storm. NPR's Greg Allen reports from Cedar Key. People who live on Cedar Key are no strangers to storm surge and flooding. Wind and storm fronts in the Gulf of Mexico often kick up the surf. Because it's so low and close to the water, the town sees flooding and even small storms. In 2016, Hurricane Hermine brought then-record storm surge and flooding. Savannah Berry says with that history, the devastation of Hurricane Idalia wasn't unexpected. Shocking's not really the right word, but certainly overwhelming. I think the amount of debris and cleanup and to have to go through that again just seven years after we already had, but... We were happy to see the living shorelines had relatively little damage. Barry is an extension agent and researcher with the University of Florida who's studying the performance of living shorelines. On Cedar Key, she, other researchers, and volunteers have used a variety of tools to mimic nature. Instead of building seawalls and jetties, they brought in sand, put in marsh plants, and used artificial reefs to encourage the growth of oyster beds offshore. Near the island's western edge, Barry checks up on one of the living shoreline projects. A day earlier, a storm front in the Gulf brought high winds, damaging surf, and minor flooding to this part of the island. But you see this debris line, how it bends towards this vegetated area? Mm-hmm. That's really showing you how this is affecting that wave power. That's what living shorelines do. They don't reduce the height of a storm surge or stop the waves from coming ashore, but they absorb and reduce the energy of incoming waves. Barry says that provides significant protection to roads, buildings, and other structures on shore. Even if they do still get flooded, they may not get as battered by wave energy. 
Over the last several years, three living shoreline projects have been created in Cedar Key. In August, as Hurricane Idalia strengthened in the Gulf and headed toward Florida, researchers placed wave gauges onshore and offshore to monitor the height and power of the storm surge. The gauges showed the living shorelines reduced the height and power of the waves reaching the shore by 15 to 20 percent. And unlike docks, seawalls, and other man-made structures, University of Florida wetlands ecologist Mark Clark says their projects came through the hurricane largely unscathed. When the water receded and we looked at these shorelines, they were minimally impacted by the actual event. Throughout Cedar Key, nearly six months after the storm, buildings and docks are being repaired and rebuilt. On the living shorelines, nature is doing the repairs as oyster reefs repopulate and mangroves and marsh grasses regrow. Living shorelines have been advocated for decades as an alternative to man-made shore-hardening measures. Seawalls, common in most coastal areas, cost more in the long run. They often fail when they're overtopped in storms, and they increase coastal erosion in adjacent areas that don't have them. Living shoreline projects are more resilient. They improve water quality and help provide habitat for plants and sea life. But in Florida and elsewhere, Barry says living shorelines have been slow to catch on. It may be hard for some people to believe that nature can be a defense, but I just think it's human nature to trust a wall more than something else. In Cedar Key, because they live so close to the water, Barry says there's a lot of public support for these nature-based projects. Working with the town, the University of Florida has developed a master plan to manage the island shoreline. And some private landowners have begun installing living shoreline projects on their properties. Greg Allen, NPR News, Cedar Key, Florida. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher is committed to helping clients stay on track to reach their financial goals and enjoy a comfortable retirement. FisherInvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at macfound.org. From Progressive, Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks, at progressivecommercial.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And Bridgewater State University, ranked 18th in Massachusetts on the Wall Street Journal's 2024 Best Colleges in America list, bridgew.edu. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The sudden death of Vladimir Putin's chief political critic Alexei Navalny raises questions about the safety of other Russian opposition leaders. The Russian authorities today are using very harsh repressive methods with regard to all those who speak out against the regime. Today is Monday, February 19th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. 
hear from the wife of a prominent political prisoner in Russia coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also, entrepreneur Mark Cuban's online pharmacy is adding two brand new Bayer drugs to his disruptor model, which relies on a radical transparency system. And since Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel, Israel has stepped up security throughout the West Bank. But activists and Palestinians warn that the new shows of force are creating a dangerous environment. These stories and the forecast are coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The widow of slain Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny says she will continue her husband's work promoting democratic change in Russia. NPR's Charles Maines reports the announcement was delivered in a video posted to her late husband's YouTube channel. Yulia Navalnaya was a fixture at her husband's side during his years in Russian opposition politics, witnessing not only Alexei Navalny's speeches, but his repeat arrest and harassment at the hands of authorities. Now Navalnaya says she'll pick up her husband's mantle as President Vladimir Putin's fiercest critic and urge Russians to join her effort. The announcement comes as Russian authorities continue to prevent her family access to Navalny's body, more than three days after prison officials say he lost consciousness and died following a walk. Navalny says the delay is intended to cover up what she calls her husband's murder, but vowed to expose both the real cause of death as well as the Russian officials behind it. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. President Biden says he'd meet with House Speaker Mike Johnson on the stalled bipartisan funding package that includes money for Ukraine. The Senate passed the measure, but Johnson says he won't bring it to the House floor for a vote. They're making a big mistake not responding. Look, the way they're walking away from the threat of Russia, the way they're walking away from NATO, the way they're walking away from meeting our obligations, is just shocking. I've been for a while. I've never seen anything like this. Johnson's been demanding a meeting with Biden, but Congress is on a break and won't be back until February 28th. And when they do get back, they'll face an urgent deadline to avert a partial government shutdown that would start March 1st, unless Congress acts. The Israeli government has issued a deadline to Hamas return the remaining hostages it took on October. Vez has more. Over a million displaced Palestinians have sheltered in Rafah for weeks, where food, water, and medical supplies are scarce, and residents have also been killed and wounded as Israeli forces search for hostages and Hamas fighters. Over the weekend, the situation grew even more desperate when crowds rushing aid trucks were shot at by Israeli police. And now, a warning from Benny Gans, a member of Israel's war cabinet, to Hamas to return the remaining 130 hostages by Ramadan, which begins on March 10th, or prepare for a major military operation in Rafah. President Biden last week said he'd spoken to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and tried to make a case against an operation in Rafah. D. Parvaz, NPR News, Tel Aviv, Israel. Wall Street was closed today in observance of the President's Day holiday. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. A new shelter is slated to open in Chelsea tomorrow. The day shelter is part of a statewide effort to help an influx of migrants and existing residents who need a home. More from WBUR's Todd Wallach. 
The Chelsea Shelter can serve up to 200 people, including families sleeping at an overnight facility in nearby Cambridge. The Cambridge Shelter is not 24-7, and so those families are needing a safe place to go during the day. That's one of the reasons we thought this particular proposal was really important. Sarah Bartley works at the United Way of Massachusetts Bay. The United Way administers a $5 million state grant to fund new shelters, including the one in Chelsea. Another nonprofit, La Collaborativa, will actually run the shelter. It plans to offer meals and space for families and individuals, as well as other assistants. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. The cities of Chelsea and Everett will share $750,000 in federal funds to help prevent coastal flooding caused by climate change. Both cities have seen increased severe flooding in recent years. Chelsea City Manager Fidel Maltese says the project includes building a retaining wall along the Chelsea waterfront. What's more exciting is that uh, at the top of that wall, we are going to build a some green space and a park. It is going to uh, really improve the, the lives of our residents in Chelsea. Maltese says the federal funding is just a start. He says the city's entire climate resiliency plan will cost $50 million. A section of the MBTA's green line will close tomorrow and stay closed for two and a half weeks. There will be no service between Copley Square and Babcock Street, Cleveland Circle and Brookline Hills. Free shuttle buses will get riders around the closure. The MBTA will also make the commuter rail free between South Station and Lansdowne Station. The closure will run through the 8th of March. Going to be cold tonight, down around 19 degrees, feeling chillier though. Tomorrow, sunny and pretty nice. Temperatures in the mid-30s once again. Wednesday, sunny, a few clouds moving in. Temperatures moving up to the low 40s. 32 degrees now in Boston at 6.06. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Billionaire Mark Cuban is on a mission to bring down the cost of prescription drugs through his online pharmacy. It's called Cost Plus Drugs, and it launched with a focus on generics. But now, two bear drugs, one for menopause and a birth control medication, are available. We'll get into what that means for bear and for patients in a few minutes. First, though, to a question prompted by the death last week of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, how safe are other Kremlin critics still being held in Russia's prison system? Among the most prominent, Vladimir Karamurza, former journalist, pro-democracy activist, and victim, he told me, of two poisoning attempts by people connected with Vladimir Putin. Here's part of our 2017 conversation. The way this toxin or this poison works is it shuts off organs one by one, one after another. So when doctors start treating something, let's say the heart, uh, about half an hour later, something else shut down. So they start treating, say, the kidneys. Then the liver shuts down, then the lungs. Karamurza recovered, returned to Russia to continue his opposition work, was arrested and sentenced two years ago to 25 years in prison over his criticism of the war in Ukraine. Well, we called Evgenia Karamurza, Vladimir's wife, to ask how he's doing. And she told me he is currently being held in solitary confinement. At the end of uh, January, 
he was transferred to yet another prison colony, uh, still in Siberia and Western Siberia in Omsk. He had been uh, in uh, the strict regime prison colony and was transferred to a so-called special regime prison colony, which is the harshest grade in the Russian penitentiary system. They hold him ice for everyone. He's still able to see his lawyer, uh, rarely, and he's still able to correspond with us through the prison mail system. And of course, uh, there is no need, I think, to say that every single letter goes through censorship. When were you actually last able to speak with him? At the end of last year, in December, Vladimir was allowed a 15-minute phone call. And that was the first uh, phone call in over half a year. And uh, we have three kids. So if you divide 15 minutes by three, it means that, um, you know, every, um, our kids had five minutes each. And I was literally standing there with um, a timer because I could not let one kid to speak to his father longer than for five minutes. And of course, I did not speak to Vladimir myself because I didn't want to take that time away from the kids. I have not spoken to my husband since last summer. I'm so sorry. I saw that um, that Valentine's Day, February 14th, was your wedding anniversary, your 20th? Yes, it was. And uh, actually, talking about phone calls, Vladimir um, requested a phone call with me on that day and uh, received an official denial. The prison authority said that this 20th uh, wedding anniversary was not an exceptional circumstance that would allow such a call. I... I can imagine, or actually I probably can't, how you must worry about him every day, every hour. Um, does that feel heavier now in the wake of what's happened with Alexei Navalny? I am absolutely sure that every single family of political uh, prisoners in Russia can now feel the pain and the um, the pain and the, the misery and the fright of um, Alexei Navalny's family. Because we all know that our loved ones are held by the regime of murderers who have been carrying out a war of aggression in Ukraine for two years. And we realize that the uh, Russian authorities today are using very harsh repressive methods with regard to all those who speak out against the war and against the regime. And those methods include punitive psychiatry, sexual and physical violence, isolation. And um, yes, these people's lives are in a grave, very grave danger. Mrs. Karamurza, I, I met and interviewed your husband here in Washington. This was back in 2017. He was recovering from what he believed to be the second time that the Kremlin had tried to poison him. He was still not in great health. But he was here. He was in Washington. He could have stayed. I have to ask, did you, did you support his decision to return to Russia? Um, as for the poisoning attacks on him, uh, thanks to an, uh, an independent investigation by Bellingcat, the insider in Der Spiegel, we know not only the names but the faces of those FSB operatives who had been following my husband before both poisonings. And this is the team, the same team of assassins in the service of the Russian state that was later responsible for the poisoning of Alexei Navalny himself. So um, I think that we uh, received our answers despite the Russian authorities' continuous 
refusal to open an investigation into these poisonings. Um, and their refusal is quite understandable, of course, because uh, obviously they're not going to investigate themselves. The same happened with the murder of Boris Nemtsov uh, in 2015. The masterminds and the organizers of this crime have not yet been identified by the Russian authorities. So knowing what happened to him, I, I have to ask again, did you support his decision to go back to Russia? My husband is a Russian patriot. He believes that our country deserves better than Vladimir Putin. And as a Russian politician, he believed it his duty to show to his compatriots that they're not alone. To those of our compatriots who uh, chose to stand up and oppose themselves openly to the regime and to the atrocities committed by it. And my husband uh, believes that he has to share the risks and the challenges faced by people back home. This is why he is where he is today. Is there anything you would say today to other members of the opposition in Russia, I suppose both inside Russia and abroad? Vladimir Putin thrives on impunity. Vladimir Putin depends on creating this warped image of reality in which the entire Russian population, all 145 millions of Russians, stand behind him in the war. And I believe that what scares Vladimir Putin is a strong response. That is my call on the global community, including those Russian citizens, and I am working with many of them, those uh, civil society groups that carry on, that have been carrying on for two years, courageously fighting the regime and trying to do everything to bring closer the day when the regime in Moscow collapses. And we need the help and support and solidarity of the global democratic community. Last thing, and it's, is there anything you would say to Alexei Navalny's wife, to Yulia Navalny, as someone who must have much more of an idea of what she is going through today than, than the rest of us? My heart goes out to her. My whole heart is breaking for Alexei's family, for what they're living through right now. Evgenia Karamurza, thank you so much. Thank you very much for speaking with me. Her husband is Russian opposition leader Vladimir Karamurza. He is imprisoned in Russia. Two more brand-name drugs are headed to entrepreneur Mark Cuban's industry-disrupting online pharmacy. One is an oral contraceptive, and the other is a menopause drug, both made by Bayer. NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lumpkin reports on what that means. Bayer is dipping its toe into the world of Mark Cuban's online pharmacy, Cost Plus Drugs. The website offers drugs at steep discounts without middlemen called pharmacy benefit managers. Yaz birth control pills and Climara for menopause will now both be available for a fraction of their list prices, including Cost Plus's standard 15% markup in shipping. To Sebastian Guth, president of U.S. Pharmaceuticals at Bayer, it will be an experiment. I really look at this as a test and learn. It's a first initial step. Uh, we will learn and see what the results of this partnership are and may then decide to expand it further. The drugs are both off-patent and face generic competition. But Guth says women often pay for both these drugs out of pocket, skipping their insurance. And they often prefer to use the brand name over available generics. The Cost Plus partnership, he says, will expand access to patients. But according to KFF's Lori Sobel, the benefit to patients isn't clear. 
Under the Affordable Care Act, birth control like Yaz is covered without any copay, though some plans may only cover the generic. But not everyone knows that. Here's Sobel. We know from our survey from 2022 that about 40% of females are not aware of that. So there's a knowledge gap of who knows that if they use their insurance, it would be covered. Meanwhile, Yaz in particular is in the top 10 oral contraceptives people paid for despite the Affordable Care Act rules. Here's Sobel again. And we also know that it's been highly marketed. And so Yaz was the most advertised brand. So even though Yaz will have a $117 price tag at Cost Plus for a three-month supply compared to its more than $500 list price, it would still be a lot cheaper to just get the generic through insurance without a copay. Limara is also much cheaper at Cost Plus, $53 instead of $76. Those higher list prices don't take into account what drug companies actually get paid for drugs when they're purchased through insurance under normal circumstances. Middlemen called pharmacy benefit managers get a cut too, and the drug companies are left with a net price. Guth declined to share Yaz's or Klimara's net prices. But drug industry veteran Richard Evans says the company probably isn't making less money through Cost Plus than regular insurance. And the visibility from Mark Cuban's pharmacy could increase sales. Sebastian Guth at Bayer says he's a big believer in pricing transparency, which Cost Plus is trying to bring more of to the United States. It will probably take a few months to see how the experiment works out. Sydney Lepkin, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. As interest rates come down, buyers are coming into the home buying market once again. Our story coming up on Marketplace, which starts at 6.30. Wall Street is closed today in honor of President's Day. Boston-based Vertex Pharmaceuticals says it's added about 600 workers over the last year. In a filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission, Vertex says it has about 5,400 employees. About 4,000 are based in Massachusetts. Vertex says it hopes to keep adding to its headcount this year. The company develops therapies for cystic fibrosis and infectious and autoimmune diseases. It's 619. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's Winter Experience, celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres. Starts February 22nd. Tickets at bostonballet.org and the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at wbur.org cars. The Bruins pulled off a win over the Dallas Stars today in a matinee at the Garden. The Bees won 4-3 in a shootout. In women's hockey, Boston is trailing Ottawa today 3-2 after the second period at the Sanka Center in Lowell. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash, family-owned since 1966, Offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car Scrub-A-Dub clean anytime you want. And Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast.
In the forecast as of now, it looks as if today's weather set the scene for the next few days. Clear skies tonight in the upper teens, so pretty cold. Tomorrow, sunny and dry. Temperatures in the mid-30s again. Could have sunshine. Some fair weather clouds around on Wednesday as well, inching up to the high 30s. In the Boston area now, 31 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Today, the International Court of Justice in The Hague began a hearing focused on Israel's occupation of the West Bank. In opening remarks, the Palestinian Foreign Affairs Minister accused Israel of setting up a system of apartheid in the occupied territories, which are home to about 3 million Palestinians. Israel maintains it has the right to defend itself from threats in the territory. Since the October 7th attack by Hamas, Israel has stepped up security throughout the West Bank. But Israeli activists and Palestinians warn that many members of the newly formed forces on patrol are Jewish settlers who want to drive Palestinians off their land. NPR's Jeff Brumfield recently visited the city of Hebron and has this story. It's a chilly winter day in Hebron. We're standing on a hill overlooking the old city, surrounded by olive trees, waiting for a Palestinian activist named Issa Umro. We were supposed to meet him at his home, but he's nowhere to be seen. He said he's uh, at the checkpoint, so maybe he was held up. I'm here with a group of ex-Israeli soldiers called Breaking the Silence, which opposes the occupation of the West Bank. Part of its mission is to shed light on the Israeli military's activities. We passed through a lot of checkpoints to get here, we were more or less waved through. Amro is not so lucky. We eventually see him making his way up the hill. I, I was at a checkpoint since 30 minutes. Really? I took off everything. He says he was forced to strip down. He even had to lose his shoes. And he told me, take the shoes off. I told him, but it's mud. Hebron is one of the largest Palestinian cities in the West Bank, and it's also among the most volatile. That's because for decades, far-right Jewish settlers have laid claim to parts of the city center near a site holy to both Jews and Muslims. Over the years, Palestinian militants have opened fire on the settlers, who have in turn committed many acts of violence against Palestinian residents. And although the military's mission is to protect the settlers, it was also seen as a moderating force. Umro says that Palestinians sometimes even ask for help. In the past, you know, we were calling the army to help us or protect us from the settlers. But that's changed. In 2022, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu appointed a far-right politician from Hebron as the national security minister. Military forces became more aggressive towards Palestinians, Amro says. 
And then came the brutal attacks of October 7th. Hamas militants burst out of the Gaza Strip and massacred some 1,200 Israelis. The West Bank is not under Hamas control, and there was no mass attack in Hebron on that day. But when Umro tried to get home from work, he found his way blocked. Not by soldiers, he says, but by heavily armed settlers in body armor. Umro shared video of that day with NPR, which was able to independently verify some details such as the location where it was shot. In one recording, two older men with long beards and assault rifles shouted him to leave. Umro says he knew them not as soldiers, but as right-wing settlers. They seem to know him shouting his name as he walks away. He tried another way and again ran into a mixed group of armed settlers and regular soldiers. This time, he was detained. So I was kidnapped by the soldiers and the settlers in an army uniform. I was taken to the military base here, handcuffed with plastic cuffs to the point that it went into my skin. And it's not, you know, it was 10 hours of pain. He says he was beaten and abused during his time in custody until a senior army officer who recognized him told the others to let him go. The Israeli military did not comment directly on UMRO's account, but told NPR it looks into cases where soldiers, quote, deviate from what is expected. It says if it finds evidence of wrongdoing by troops, then, quote, significant command measures will be taken. Since he was held, things have only gotten worse, Umro says. Palestinians in central Hebron have been forced to stay inside for days at a time by settlers equipped with weapons, radios, and uniforms. There is no distinction anymore between the soldiers and the uh, violent settlers, either in their army uniform or in in their civilian uniform. Below Umro's house in the streets of central Hebron, the mixing of settlers and soldiers is on display. Since October 7th, many of the regular military units that patrolled Hebron have been sent to either fight in the war in Gaza or defend the northern border with Lebanon. To fill the gap, the military has recruited locals into regional defense units, including one here. We pass a group of them, young men in uniform wearing yarmulkes and peyote, the long curly locks of hair worn by religious Jews. You see on the patch, uh-huh. it says uh, the Agmar unit of Hebron. So those will be local settlers who've been mobilized. Uh Nadav Weiman is a former Israeli Special Forces soldier who is now deputy director of Breaking the Silence. The young men look well-equipped with rifles and new-looking helmets and body armor. But they're not the only ones here. As we walk through the old city, someone in a personal vehicle begins honking at us. He swings his car in front of us aggressively, blocking our path. He's shouting. Yeah, he's a settler. He's a settler. What's he saying? Until the Palestinian would rape you, you won't come to your senses. This settler is not with the military, Vyman says, but he is part of a local emergency response unit, and he's armed. He's a settler from the first response team of the settlement. He has an M16 with him, and he's a violent settler. Now freshly empowered as part of the security system designed to keep the peace in the West Bank. A soldier comes and talks to him, and eventually he drives off and leaves us alone. The settlers say this new arrangement is necessary in the post-October 7th world. One named Shai Cohen comes to speak to us. It's true, he says, many have joined the reserve forces in the West Bank. I don't do army, but I have two, two brothers, and my father also do reserve now in the army. Everybody now in the army, 
He says this is about safety for settlers like him. Jewish people living also here in this country. We have terror attack, a lot of terror attack. In its statement, the Israeli military said there have been more than 700 attacks in the West Bank since the beginning of the war. It has stepped up counterterrorism operations and checkpoints as a result, it says. Back at his home in the hills above central Hebron, Palestinian activist Issa Amro says he feels like he's under siege. His settler neighbors have long wanted him and other Palestinians out of their homes. Since October 7th, they've been relentlessly harassed. It's a policy to make our life harder and harder to make us leave certain areas. Umro estimates 20 to 30 percent of Palestinian families living nearby have already left. He says he's staying put for now, but he's more frightened than ever. I think they may come and shoot me in my room, in my bedroom. Nobody has given him a vest or a helmet to protect himself. Instead, he's bricked up his windows with cinder blocks to try and feel safe in his own home. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News, Hebron. The number of teens dying from overdoses has doubled in the last few years. One way to reverse that trend could be by tapping into a resource that kids are already familiar with, their pediatrician. Any cravings for opioids at all? None. What makes me really proud of you, Sam, is how committed you are to getting better. On tomorrow's All Things Considered, we look at the push to get more pediatricians to provide addiction care. You can listen online, on air, or ask your smart speaker to play your local member station by name. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. This afternoon, the Bruins had their first win in five games as they beat Dallas in a shootout. Final score, Bruins four, Stars three. Red Sox are bringing closer Liam Hendricks on board for a two-year deal. He made headlines last year with the Chicago White Sox when he made a comeback after he was treated for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Hendricks won't be ready to pitch until summer as he recovers from Tommy John surgery. And the Red Sox will reportedly wear uniform patches this season to honor the late Tim Wakefield. The longtime Sox pitcher died last year from brain cancer. He was 57 years old. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com and Leslie University inspire a whole new generation of learners with an education degree from Leslie University. Get started today at leslie.edu.